Well, it's a great honor for me to be here today. The program that you folks represent here, the program that Catherine has just announced, a spectacular program in social entrepreneurship, are designed to make differences in the world. I'm quite honored to be in a program with people that make a difference in the world. Congressman Markey is a leading public servant and a leader of Congress and of our nation. Larry served beautifully as a public servant himself before assuming his present role. He's now brought his brilliance and his courage to what is the world's most distinguished university. And he's brought with those talents of his a capacity to enable Harvard to take the risks that sometimes great institutions are unwilling to take. And of course, in Wendy, we have a perfect example of a person who's enabled young people with the inspiration of her thought and her model to take risks and to take it in the important area of teaching about which I'll devote my time. But the best examples of social entrepreneurship that we have, of course, are Wayne and Catherine. Wayne, whose father started this program in 1961, a program that Wayne has admirably built to produce this and the program that you folks have enjoyed over the last several days. And Catherine, a good friend now of going on to three years, going back to a chance meeting at the Kennedy Center Awards in December three years ago. And together today, with the announcement that Catherine just made, to make no mistake about it, they gave the best example of social entrepreneurship that any of us is going to give. And I'd ask all of you to please join me again in saluting them. Now, I hope that I've cast some good out into the world, and in some way, someday, I could be a model of social entrepreneurship. But I'm going to turn the process around here for a few minutes because Wayne and Catherine asked me to tell you a story, not of my own social entrepreneurship, but of, uh, of why it is that I'm here today as a product of social entrepreneurship. And I think that's the way you, you should visualize what I'm about to tell you about a very, very special man whose name to all of a generation of, uh, of young boys who moved through a high school where he was the moving and defining spirit uh, for all of us was simply Charlie. Uh, Charlie had uh, the capacity to, to instill in us, and we were all projects, believe me, all of us coming from relatively poor backgrounds, relatively limited horizons, the capacity to dream any dream, dream any dream at all. I still remember his his address. It's the house he lived from his birth till, till he died, although he didn't occupy it in the closing days of his life. 212 Lincoln Road. I still remember his phone number as Ingersoll 28054. We were all welcome at 212 Lincoln Road. There was one requirement. Charlie would always post outside of the teacher's room a book or poem that you had to have read if you expected to enter 212 Lincoln Road. And if you entered, it could be that some kind of seminar or colloquium would be going on uh, on that book or, 
uh, on that poem. But just as easily it would be an opera that would be playing and you'd be listening for the first time to music you'd never heard. Or someone would have said uh, uh, that he had not had Chinese food and the folk was, would be leaving 212 Lincoln Road to pile into Charlie's car to go to Chinatown for your maybe your first, in my case, visit to New York City. We, we called it in Brooklyn, the city. Just to go across the bridge to the city. Uh, to go to Chinatown was magical. I remember the first time I ever entered Greenwich Village uh, to go to a restaurant was to go to Felix's on 13th Street with Charlie, where the opera was sung by the waiters. Uh, a Jesuit priest named Bill O'Malley was, was at that high school, which hasn't existed since 1972 exactly at the time that I arrived there as a student. He gives, a, in his autobiography, a, a teacher's perspective of this unbelievable social entrepreneur. In his autobiography, he goes down talking about some of the great teachers that we had there, and then he says the following. I'm just going to read you a couple of paragraphs. He says, and then there was Charlie Winans. Charlie was the first, now remember, this is a priest writing this. Charlie was the first fully realized Christian I ever met. He lived every day in capital letters. He had the body of Orson Welles and the soul of St. Francis of Assisi. God had made the world and saw it was good, and we should not insult God by not enjoying it. Charlie could drink until three, but he'd be up for mass at six. He taught classes, and he directed plays with broad strokes, expansive, bellowing, bellying, leaving details like memorizing lines to the fear and adrenaline of the last week. He took the boys to the opera, to plays, to films, to dinner in Manhattan, to Irish bars, to Greek bars, to Russian bars. He opened up a whole realm of learning and life about pe and, and about people to rough Brooklyn boys. He gave no thought to whether they could or would pay their share with the result that he was always writing checks and always wondering why the bank was stealing from his bank account. Charlie taught me how to direct, how to teach, how to cure a hangover, how to rise above the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, but most of all, how to be a Christian. You could say, to change Bill O'Malley's words, how to be a social entrepreneur. It's odd that I've been a Catholic for 26 years and a religious for seven before this great man showed me what the Gospels were really about, to give and not to count the cost, to struggle onward and damn the small minds, to be used until you're used up, even by people unworthy of your gift. Charlie died about six weeks ago, and uh, I placed a small obituary in the New York Times that was simply signed to his students. I got an email from one of my classmates. This classmate had lost a son on September the 11th. This is his email. Since my son's death, I've not had much of a reaction to anyone else's passing, but this is, in fact, quite different I feel as though I've lost someone who loved me long ago when it really mattered, and loved me not because I was smart or talented, but just because I was young and I wanted to be a good person. I met Charlie at the opera about five years ago, and I had a wonderful talk with him about that nice piece. I've always regretted not writing him to say that minutes after we had parted, I realized I was actually at the opera because of him, because he opened up a world to me, a working-class boy from Woodhaven, that became an integral part of who I am. I know it must seem far-fetched, John, but the truth is I could still recall Charlie's classes on poetry so vividly because he made us recite out loud the great thoughts of the great poets, and he never, never, never once made fun of our ignorance or even of our Brooklyn accents. I was given a lot of credit 
in legal education for something that happened at NYU Law School on my watch called the Global Law School Initiative. Sounds very, very fancy, very opening. Uh, it, it helped create a paradigm shift uh, in legal education. Uh, about five years ago, I was climbing the pyramid of Teotihuacan with my then 11-year-old daughter. I was terrified because I have a fear of heights, but I was going to make it because of Katie. She was going up undaunted. And I heard Charlie's uh, voice come back to me from 1958, before anybody ever talked about interdisciplinary or ethnocentric thinking. Uh, Charlie taught us a course an hour a day, every day for three years. It was simply called Charlie. Uh, he started with the cave paintings of Altamara and, uh, and percussion music, and he worked his way up through the centuries and ended with the Korean War and Jackson Pollock. And simultaneously, he taught us history, literature, art, and music. And I'm climbing that pyramid, and I can remember the day that Charlie had the Pyramid of Giza on the, on the, on the board, and we'd read the Book of the Dead. And he said, boys, you will never see these pyramids because you can't drive to them. <laughs> see, we couldn't afford ships or planes. He said, but there are pyramids south of here that you haven't heard of because the British did not rob them for their museums. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and he said, you can drive to them. And I said, as I'm climbing this pyramid of which he spoke, I said, it was he who invented the Global Law School Initiative. It wasn't me. I'm just a Charlie knockoff. Just a Charlie knockoff. Uh, I persuaded the Jesuits uh, in the last months of Charlie's life to take him as the first uh, non-Jesuit in their senior care facility up in the Bronx on the Fordham campus. From I graduated from Fordham. I'd go up there to visit him. I'll leave you with one final Charlie story. Uh, I, he, uh, I was wheeling him around the Fordham campus just about this time last year. He was wheelchair bound. We stopped in front of some flowers and uh, and he said to me, John, I'm going to invite you to a religious practice that I myself began 70 years ago. He said, I decided that no one of my uh, limited talent would ever be able to commit a transgression that was worthy of God's attention. <laughs> so I decided that I would stop confessing sins of commission and would confess only sins of omission. I would submit to you, O oh, talented members of the Academy, that you need only worry about sins of omission. Go forth and use your talent well. That is Charlie's message. I am living proof of what that social entrepreneur did with just one of what would be hundreds of his projects that could speak to you the way I have today. Thank you.